This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries, official sponsor of Faction 46 and Nice Motorsports Truck Series teams. Forney offers versatile welding and plasma cutting machines, along with a full line of metalworking accessories for beginners, do-it-yourselfers, and professionals. Forney has everything you need for your next metalworking project. Shop for these top-of-the-line products at ForneyIND.com, that's F-O-R-N-E-Y-I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's so, the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. You know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good. And then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the boat. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy still when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Bought Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. 
Learn more at marines.com. Hello, this is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, where driving the pace car was, is, and always will be the coolest job in NASCAR. Steve, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. I have never driven a pace car. I've ridden them, but I've never driven one. You haven't? No. So you mean to tell me (laughs) that there is one thing in NASCAR that I have done that you have not? You've probably done a lot more than that, than I have, to be honest with you. At least not that I'm going to tell people. I have to admit to you something here. I don't remember this pace car thing. What exactly? What? You don't remember that? No. That was one of the greatest moments of my Winston Cup saying career, if not the greatest moment. My wife, Jeannie, says that when I'm really tired, I'll talk in my sleep. So one night, I wake her up, and I'm cussing John Darby in the middle of the night. Just cousin him like he's a dog. And at the time, John Darby was the Bush Series director. Long story short, I was cussing John Darby because he wouldn't let me drive the pace car. Well, I don't blame him. (laughs) So I got to the racetrack. I told John about the dream, and it became a running joke. And all throughout that year, it was just one thing after another. And he would say, y'all, you're just mad at me because I won't let you drive the pace car. I wasn't at a race, and John asked me the next race where I'd been, and I said, oh, I was just too depressed. I couldn't drive the pace car. <laughs> so the last race of the year at Homestead, aha, 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 Phil Cavelli comes to me in the media center and says, hey, John Darby needs to see you in the Bush Series holler now. And I had never been summoned to the truck before. Uh-huh. And went over there and knocked on the door, and he says, come in. I mean, my knees are shaking. I had never been in a situation like that. And after talking for a bit, he said, today is the day that we're going to let you drive the pace car. So I got to drive the second pace car at Homestead. And who winds up just behind me on the starting grid? Buckshot Jones. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Buckshot Jones. So anyway, (laughs) Steve, you better stop me now because I'll talk about this for the rest of the episode. So again... Hey, there's no better job in all of NASCAR than driving the pace. I'm glad you got the opportunity to do just that. Pace car driver, podcast host. Let's see. (laughs) Done it all. So, Steve, this week we've got the first part of my interview with Rusty Wallace. And in this story, he tells about the first race that he ever ran in the Winston Cup division, which, of course, he finished second to this kid by the name of Dale Earnhardt. And then we discuss the 1989 the Winston All-Star Race. So, Steve, it's a great conversation that he and I had. We kind of came to terms a little bit. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Also, in our issue of the week, we're going to go all the way back to February 26th, 1981, which carried news of Dale Inman leaving Petty Enterprises. That was shocking. Yeah. Shocking. So, obviously, another longtime driver-crew chief combination was in the news, and they're going their separate ways. And I think it really shocked a lot of people, just like Dell Emmon and Richard Petty. And it does happen. You know, you see these crew chief and driver combinations produce great success year after year after year. And you can never anticipate the party breaking up. Well, like it did for Chad Knauss and Jimmy Johnson, which was a bit of a shock. It happened between Dale Emmon and Richard Petty way back in 1981. And this was a family affair. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Dale was Richard's cousin. 
and it makes you think. Maybe these long-term associations uh, lead to questions about what's going on. In the case of Jimmy Johnson and Chad Knauss, they've not enjoyed the success that they had in the past. Maybe that had something to do with it. It's time to shake up their things. And perhaps that was the same thing with Dale Inman and Richard Petty. And I think it was, but I think there was something else to it. Now, there's a tidbit for us to talk about in a minute. <laughs> you just going to leave that hanging out there? Yes, sir. By all means, we will talk about it. Rusty, I really don't even know where to start, but I'll go back to the very beginning, at least when it comes to your Winston Cup career. You finished second in Atlanta in 1980, driving a Chevrolet owned by Roger Penske. How did that deal come about? Uh, that happened because of Don Miller. Don Miller lived in St. Louis, Missouri, and I lived in St. Louis also. But what I was doing, I was running the American Speed Association back then and a lot of short track racing. And Don, being from St. Louis uh, and me being from there, started watching me. And uh, I was winning a lot of races. And then he came up to me and said, you know, what, we got to put a car together for you and, and try to run it and uh i said with penske and he goes yeah i said holy smokes and so he went with roger called roger and he said look i got this young kid back in st louis and man he's tearing everything up he's he's aggressive he's pretty rough around the edges he said i, he, I remember don said we can clean him up and, and he, he's got some awesome hair <laughs> yeah big old hair right? and uh and so anyway they had a 1980 chevrolet caprice that Roger bought before they shut the team down and sold everything to Bill Elliott and those guys. Yeah. And so he had it just sitting there. And he said, well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you boys come up here, put some guys together, and put this car together. Let's take a test a little bit. Let's see if this kid's got. And, and boy, Don jumped right on it. He got a hold of Tex Powell. Don did. And then we got a hold of Don Kern, who built engines for me in my short track days. And we all started putting pieces and parts together. And we took got that car done. We took it to Atlanta. We tested it. And, man, we went off racing, and, and that was it. My first race was a second-place finish. I couldn't believe it. They were completely surprised. We were just blown away. And I went, well, man, I've been winning like crazy in those short tracks back in the Midwest. Maybe this NASCAR thing is easier than I thought. <laughs> Boy, yeah. was I wrong. Yeah. How'd that work out for you? That didn't work out too good. I mean— we ran that first race and finished second. Then he took me to another one, uh, Arca race, I think, in, up in Michigan. And I tore the dry shaft out of the car. And then I went somewhere else and got my doors blowed off. And he said, well, Roger could tell that this first race was everything went right and everything else behind that. The other races didn't go good at all. Yeah. And he could tell I needed more experience. And he told me, he said, look, uh, this this thing is starting to affect my IndyCar team because we're, we're trying to run that car out of the IndyCar shop really? in Reading. Uh, yeah. And he says, I think we just need to hang it up right now. And he said, look, he said, I, he said, I think you got some talent. He said, you need to get some more experience, though. So how about this? You go get some more experience, and then hopefully our paths across later down the road. Man, was I disappointed. Yeah. I said, all right. So that was 1980. So then I went on and fast forward along. I went and got more experience. And I ended up winning that ASA championship in 1983. And because of me winning that championship in 83, I got noticed by Cliff Stewart to come down to NASCAR land and try driving that number 88 Gatorade car. And I was able to win uh, the rookie of the year that year in that car. And then uh, had another opportunity pop up with Raymond Beetle, went to Raymond's team, and won races right off the bat. I mean, immediately. I was like four races in, and I win Bristol. 
Then three or four races later, I go win Martinsville. One race, the first win at Bristol, I said, well, maybe I just got lucky and everything was perfect, kind of like that second-place finish. Well, then after that, I was really running good, and then I went to Martinsville one again. I said, wow, holy smokes, have I finally made it into the NASCAR club. <laughs> that, that's what I used yeah. to call it, made it into the club. And at that point, I did, and that was um, a great team, and that team catapulted me to where I was. Now, you mentioned going to Cliff Stewart, and you run the – full schedule for the first time in mm-hmm. 1984 you had a couple of top five finishes you had a total of four top tens were you satisfied with your rookie year or did you feel like there was maybe more left on the table no i was major disappointed were you really really disappointed yeah i was just really i i didn't run near as good as i thought i would started questioning my ability and i'll never forget neil bonnet grabbing a hold of me and he goes hey man you can drive the car. I watch you run these short tracks. He said, just stay with it. Everybody believes in you. Don't get, don't, don't get down on yourself. And I was getting down on myself. And I actually talked to Neil about this. And, uh, but it was frustrating as hell. It really was how, how we ran. And then we blew a lot of engines. Yeah. Man, we were blowing motors up like crazy. And it was just, it didn't, just didn't get the performance. I'll never forget going to Nashville, I think it was. And I think I had a fourth-place finish. My brother came up to me and said, see, you can do it. You can do it. And (laughs) I said, I know I can do it. I just got to get these damn cars. (laughs) Got to get them handling the way I want them, you know, because back then it was just all about handling. It was all about making them those damn four tires stick to the track. And if you could do that, I could manage the rest, you know. How did the deal with Raymond come about? Raymond Beetle, how did that come about? It's basically Barry Dotson and Harold Elliott started it. They saw me on a weekly basis driving that 88 car, and they knew my short track upbringing. And, I, and they were a, a younger, aggressive bunch of guys, you know. And I was young and aggressive, too. And they saw me winning those ASA races from the past. Then they saw some pretty good brute speed with me in the number 88 car that year, even though I say it was a bad year, which it was a bad year. But the races that were good, they saw that good. Oh, yeah, yeah, they they yeah. saw those good runs and went, he can do it. He can do it. And then when the deal with Tim Richmond started coming apart, uh, they just talked to Beetle. And Be- Raymond Beetle was the type of guy who said, if that's what you guys want, no problem. His, his favorite word, Raymond's word, was no problem, no problem. <laughs> and unfortunately, yeah. you know, sometimes uh, he would just let us do anything we wanted. And I think we financially ran him out of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's just a wonderful guy. We really miss him. Uh, but – he said, go for it. If you think this young guy can do it, we'll stick him in there. Man, they stuck me in that car, 1986, and took me right to the Valley Dale 500 in Bristol, and I won. Yeah. And then, I, like I said, I won again, and then, then, we're, then we were there. Then they had the confidence in me, and my God, I, didn't, I wasn't worried about me having confidence in them because I just wanted anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Know? They had confidence in me. Well, you mentioned winning at Bristol. You mentioned winning at Martinsville. Was there a point? where you kind of took a look around the garage and said, you know what, I, I, I've i made it. I, I do belong here. Uh, yeah, I did. And when there was a lot of people starting to be really nice to me. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, they were just yeah, they, yeah. nice meaning I felt like they were accepting me. You know, right, they weren't yeah. treat, treating me like some outsider that didn't or some rich kid that didn't deserve to be here because I was broke on my ass. I didn't have any money. <laughs> I left St. Louis with – my wife and I had everything we had saved up was like $2,600. And we loaded everything up in an old beat-up furniture truck and moved to North Carolina. We were wow. broken our ass, you know. Yeah. 
and then um, NASCAR made me what I am today. But you know, then I started getting I started getting accepted by guys that were not really the drivers. Drivers, yes, but crew chiefs like Jake Elder took a liking to me. You know, Bud Moore took a liking to me, and and Bobby Allison and all these guys. Like, man, you know, I know this guy's background. You know, and doesn't surprise me that he's doing pretty good right here. And man, he's all he. Yeah, I was always super nice to those guys. You know, and and just right away we all start getting along. I didn't have any problem with anybody that I'm aware of. You yeah. know, uh, so we we got along good. 1988, you went a couple of races earlier in the year but then you come on like gangbusters and you win like four out of the last five races yeah obviously you hit on something what did you have what we had was just an incredible focus on handling on really making the car stick to the track harold's engines were good um and myself and jimmy maycar and harold elliott and uh, todd parrott we just work like mad on that car. I mean, that's all it was. People might have conversations that, hey, I, I went to the ball game with my kid. When we'd have our conversations about what type of shock are we going to run? Yeah. Or we yeah. might have a conversation with our neighbor about, hey, we're going to go out to dinner tonight. Our conversation was, I wonder how much air we're going to put in that right front tire. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Yeah. We never had a normal conversation. I, can't, I felt almost like an idiot talking to a normal person. Because I didn't know how to talk to a normal person. We just talked car talk. That's yeah. all we talked about. And I will tell you, I don't do that near as much now, but I, I still end up doing that, you know. Do you really? I go back in the back of this building right here with my son, and all him and I talk about is car talk. Yeah. That's all we do. We talk about motorcycles or cars or developing a new shock for his short track car or something, you know. And that's what we did. We just focused, laser focused on that car. I went to every single wind tunnel test with him. Every wow. damn one of them I went with. Yeah. I tried to at least. Yeah. So I knew what the downforce numbers were. Not that I knew what to do with them, but at least I knew what was going on. I wasn't just in a fog, you know, and I was constantly looking at tire stagger and 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 back then it was a bias supply tire. We were constantly looking at when they were made and and, and what factory they're making. Because I could always tell different grip levels when I drove it if I felt different tires were different age. So we were always in there picking out the different style tires and doing all this. I was involved in all that stuff. Uh, Todd Parrott was our tire guy back then, and he was really a, a, a fantastic at that. But I, I just tell you, I was I've paid attention to all that, and, and I think all my guys would back up what I'm saying. Man, if there's everybody when I was done driving. Driving. They said there was old Rusty, the short track guy, and he's like Mr. Chassis because that's all I cared about, you know. You finished second to Bill Elliott mm-hmm. in the standings that year by 24 points. Was it more frustrating to know that you came this close, or was it more a sense of optimism for 1989? Uh, it was definitely frustrating because I personally thought I had the best car and I thought I had better runs, and I can't exactly remember what happened in '88 to cause me to lose those points there at the very end. But I, I really thought I had a better car. And to come up short was very, very super frustrating because I remember Bill was very consistent and ran real good. He was holding on. And I know I was driving like a total maniac, you know, trying to get it done. And when I couldn't get it done, it was frustrating. But I did learn a lot. I learned a lot in 88. And what I learned uh, for the 89 season was the bonus point thing. I was never paying attention to getting all the bonus points I could. 
I said, man, in order to win this race, you got to be around at the very end. Don't tear this car up. Don't wear it all out. Stay working on it all day long to get it fast. But going into 89, I said, okay, I'm going to have to do what I just did in 88, but I'm going to have to add to this. I'm going to have to, because I, I was just got off that year, listened to Earnhardt talk a lot about, and all the media talk about how he led more bonus, got more bonus points than anybody and this and that. So I said, all right, I'm just going to try to lead a lap lead the most laps, do all I possibly can. And that's what I did different in 89. Why I was driving and leading races and running up front, won six of them that year. I kept thinking, get those damn bonus points, get those bonus points. And I don't know the exact number, but I think when it was all said and done, I, I got the most bonus points that year. I got like 125 bonus points, I think. And then at the end of the year, I only beat Earnhardt by just a little bit. I said, can you imagine how many races I won and how good this car run if I wouldn't have paid attention to those yeah. damn bonus points. Yeah. Wow. And that's what he was doing the whole time. Yeah. He was always, man, I got to get them bonus points. And I, it just wasn't in my head. I had Bobby Allison was tutoring me along back in the day. Boy, don't wreck that, <laughs> don't wreck that car. Don't tear it up. You yeah. can't win the race if you're not around at the end. And so a lot of people were telling me that. But then I just had to grow on that, you know. And, and so that's what won me a title in 89. I'll never forget that. Bonus points, bonus points. Go, 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 go. You win the race, set on them poles, do all that stuff. Got to have them bonus points too. So bonus points are the new focus going in 1989. You go to Charlotte, the Winston, and got to tell you, Rusty, before I got into the sport professionally, 1989 was my first year being interested in NASCAR. Watched the first race of the year. Who won the Daytona 500, Darrell Waltrip. Mm-hmm. So I'm a Darrell Waltrip fan. Okay. And you come off turn four. <laughs> <laughs> what did you see from your seat? What I saw was incredible adrenaline in my seat. Uh, I'm jacked up. I ran the first segment. I drove away. Had a super fast car. Got in the second segment, and the car was not handling I said, what in the hell's wrong with this car? It was so fast in the first segment. Make the pit stop on the second segment. Barry Dotson comes across the radio. I said, I found a problem. I found a problem. He's almost emphatic on the radio. I said, what is it? He said, we accidentally got the right rear tire on the right front and got the right front on the right rear. No kidding. And I'll never forget. Wow. Right front tire measured 88 and a half inches <laughs> in diameter. Yeah. The right rear, we had it at 88 inches. Half inch smaller right rear tire. We always did that. Somehow we got the 88 and a half in the right rear, and that car's loose as hell. So in the second segment, I'm loose. I just couldn't go, just too loose, yeah. loose, loose, loose. Yeah. We came down to get everything back on. He said, you're back normal, man. We found the problem. You're good to go. Drive the shit out of it. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I get out there. Old Daryl takes off, and I'm going, man, this thing is fast. It's back normal again. Yeah. And I run him down, and I catch him. I get, I catch him, and, and I, I had no patience at all. I'm like, this is the Winston. Everybody's touting. Go out there and do it. Just yeah, bring, just yeah. bring the steering wheel back. You don't have to worry about bonus points. No, hell no. <laughs> I'm just going for it. When that thing took yeah. off and I just barreled it down in turn three, I just stayed wide open on the throttle, the front end slide, and I said, it'll, it'll stick. Keep on going, keep on going. And it didn't stick, and I slid up into him, and I bumped him, and, and he spun, and whole damn infield got in a fight. It was dramatic. <laughs> it was. They're still talking about it today. Yeah, yeah. But it was two complete different mindsets. Going into that race and then going into Coca-Cola 600, two different deals. But, man, I'll tell you what, uh, this morning when I was out there doing that interview, yeah, we were kind of talking about mindset, you know, so 
in, in, in different types of mindset. How did you go for a championship? I said, I said to me, every single race I ran, I had to pretend it was the last race. This is my only chance. I wasn't looking way down the road, you know. I was looking in front of me. Oh, yeah. I yeah. said, that's all yeah. I can do. And that's how you do in the doggone Winston. You just go like hell, and then that's it, you know. And it got me in trouble and created a lot of drama. And, and then I look back at it. I don't know if it got me in trouble or not. It just got a lot of attention and yeah. excitement, and it was pretty wild. Prior to that, Daryl had had kind of a bad boy reputation. He had had, you know, his run-ins with media and fans and so forth and inviting them down to the Kmart parking lot to fist fight and all that kind of thing. But it seemed like after that happened, you know, he became the good guy. And for a time, you wore a black hat. Mm -hmm. In all seriousness, was it hard for you to deal with that? It was very hard for me to deal with it because I I just had flashbacks of me growing up and not having nothing and trying to make it. And then you're making it, your baby steps, you're making it. And all of a sudden now at 88, you almost win. 89, I do win the title. But what we're talking about here in the middle of it and it's like you're going and going and going and all all of a sudden you have this massive setback it just brings you all the way back down and you look up and and i was always used to having some pretty good cheers then it was just all booze i'm like man i am (laughs) not a bad person guys yeah this is this race i'm going for it you know and this happened and um yeah that was it was really really tough you know it that that um would that last that lasted uh Three or four years, I think. I think Did it really that long. I remember that. I, I remember when it changed, when I finally started getting my fans back was '93. Yeah, I remember it clearly. Once you took the lead in the point standings late in the year in 1989, how confident were you about the championship? I had a lot of confidence at that point because I knew I had the bonus thing in my mind. I know I had the speed, had the brute speed in the car. And so, yeah, I had a lot of confidence going into it. Although I was constantly looking over my shoulder at Earnhardt because I knew that whole crowd. I knew how they operated. And I knew how they were relentless, you know. Mean, tough, sometimes nasty, uh, (laughs) relentless. I knew what I was up against, you know. And the guy kept reminding me of that was Barry Dodson. He said, let me tell you something. We got the fastest car. He said, but these guys know how to win championships because I've done so many of them. Yeah, I, I knew exactly what was around me. I just knew that I had to get away from them. I had to get out front. had to get gone on every single occasion I could. And while that is going on in my mind, Earnhardt and I are, were still some of the best friends off the racetrack, you know. All right, Steve. Rusty Wallace, basically an unknown at the time, plans to start his Winston Cup career, and he doesn't come into the sport and get a ride with one of the independent drivers at the time, like Buddy Arrington or Jimmy Means or Elmo Langley or one of those guys. No, he gets a ride with Roger Penske. Now, how in the world do you think he put that together? I think what happened is Roger Penske has an eye for talent, and Rusty Wallace was one of the best drivers on the ASA, American Speed Association, located in the Midwest. And he had good company. Uh, Mark Martin was from there. Alan Kowicki was from there as well. And I think Penske just happened to catch Rusty Wallace perform. I think that what he probably did was say, okay, let's see if this kid has any potential in Winston Cup. So he gave him a ride for the race at Atlanta. And, of course, we all know what happened there. 
Rusty finished second in Atlanta, and that really caught the media by surprise. Now, how big a deal was that? I mean, here's a guy who's never been on this circuit before, and not only does he complete the race, he finishes second. Yeah. That today would just be absolutely unheard of. Well, it was big news back then. I mean, nobody knew Rusty Wallace in NASCAR circles. And to see him finish second at a super speedway race when most of the ASA races were on short tracks was something incredible. And basically, we in the media thought that this was a fluke, to be honest with you, because we don't know. Roger Penske had made no announcement about a full-time team or anything of that nature or putting Rusty Wallace into NASCAR with a car. And sure enough, well, let's face it, after a couple of years went by and Rusty didn't get a full-time ride, that's what we thought it was, that this kid was good, but this had to be a fluke. Boy, we proven wrong. <laughs> now, you were proven wrong eventually yeah. because, you know, Rusty did go to, a, I think he said, an ARCA race, and then he came back and did a cup race, I believe, later that same season. Maybe didn't do so well in those races, and he eventually went back to ASA won the 1983 ASA championship. So it did take a while. Now, another thing that I want to point out was this race, the 1980 spring race in Atlanta, that was Dale Earnhardt's very first super speedway victory. And I love the headline on the March 27th, 1980 issue of Grand National Scene. It said, Earnhardt, surprise winner. (laughs) Yeah. Of Atlanta 500. Now, how many more times in the course of his career was Dale Earnhardt considered a surprise winner? <laughs> uh, how about zippity-doo-dah? <laughs> that Atlanta race was very notable just for the top two finishers. One was an up-and-coming star that a lot of us felt would do great things. The other one was, well, and I repeat, uh, the other one was a guy we thought was a fluke. And we had no idea at the time of what Rusty Wallace would become. Well, certainly he made a success of his career. He ran for Cliff Stewart. Maybe didn't do quite as well as he would have hoped, and he talked about that. But then he joined forces with Raymond Beetle, the drag racer, and they found immediate success. He won, I think, his fourth or fifth race out of the box at Bristol. Then in 1988, made a very, very, very serious challenge for the Winston Cup championship. Correct. One, I think I think it was four out of the last five races, so came up just short of Bill Elliott in the championship battle. So he goes into 1989. He has this new viewpoint. He's going to chase all the bonus points. And then we get to the Winston. <laughs> oh, oh, now here's a little background for you, Steve. 1989 right. was the very first year that I really paid any attention at all to NASCAR. My hero, Pete Rose, was going through his troubles, so he was fixing to get kicked out. And I needed to find a new interest. And my best friend, Joe Estep, and his mom, Sandy Estep, to this day, Sandy Estep is the biggest NASCAR fan that I know. Mm-hmm. She's the one that introduced me to Winston Cup scene. So you have her to blame for all of this. <laughs> <laughs> and it was at her house that I watched the 1989 Daytona 500. Uh-huh. Now, who won that race? DW. DW. And D.W. was from right down the road in Franklin, Tennessee. I was living in Nashville, Tennessee at the time. So he was a local guy. He was a successful guy. He was a Christian guy. And so he became my guy. This is before I ever got into the sport professionally. So I was a huge, huge Daryl Waltrip fan. And then came 
the Winston. Well, let's do even more background for you here. When Daryl first broke in to racing back in the 70s, he was an odd duck. I want to tell you that because he was outgoing. He was a smart aleck. <laughs> he tweaked the noses of the veteran drivers out there, always had comments about them, not afraid to speak his mind, and that did not endear him to too many NASCAR fans who'd never seen the likes of this brash kid who was coming into their sport and, and you know, insulting their favorites, Kale and Bobby and Richard and David and so forth and so on. Well, as time passed, uh, Daryl didn't really slow down too much when it came to the type of person he was. But as his career progressed, by 1989, Daryl was transitioning from a smart aleck to an elder statesman. That it got him many fans, including a guy named Rick Houston. I'm sure. <laughs> I yeah. don't know how Rick Houston would have taken Daryl Walter back in 1976 or 77 or 78 and there. So you got to remember, this is, this is where Daryl's popularity, which was always good and now goes much better in 1989, he is no longer, in many fans' eyes, the villain. He's becoming the elder statesman, as I said. Again, not afraid to speak his mind, but with a heck of a lot more maturity to it. So picture him now as a crowd favorite when we go into the Winston of 1989. Coming into that next-to-last lap, Rusty was coming up on DW. They go through three and four, and it really does look like, you know, Daryl got in there pretty hot. Rusty got in every bit as hot, if not hotter. And coming off turn four, they made contact, and <laughs> I can remember that to this day. Yeah, I mean, that race, in a lot of respects, made the Winston because they will show that clip – for the all-star race right. as long as they ever hold it right? because that was one of the iconic moments in that event's history. It was, and it had a lot of backlash to it as well. Uh, there was a scuffle in the infield between the crews. You know, they got into That it. was pretty close to being an all-out brawl. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was very lucky. That could have been big. Oh, I, cooler heads prevailed, thank goodness. But there was a scuffle in that, and Daryl was just furious, as you might expect. And uh, like I said, he, he was transitioning to the elder statesman, but he still spoke his mind. And he, told, he said about Rust, I hope he chokes on that $200,000 <laughs> yeah. that he won. Now, here's the other thing. Uh, Rusty started hearing more booze from the crowd than he yes, had he before. Did. And he talked about that in this interview. I'm sure he time. did because yeah. we sat down together and he was genuinely upset, not because he had done anything wrong in his mind, but because he, was lo- he thought he was losing his fan base. He said, it's terrible to go out there and listen to that. I didn't used to hear that. And I'm getting really worried that the fans have turned on me. And I don't know how I'm going to be able to take that. So and I wrote that. I wrote that about the situation. So the good part about it, though, was that uh, in time, the, the fans began to let it go. Let me ask you this. What do you think that one single incident did for Darrell Walter's popularity. Does he win most popular driver that year without that? You know, you're probably right. I didn't think about that, but you're probably right. Let me go back to what I said earlier. As Darrell was transitioning at this time, and again, uh, as many fans that were down on Rusty after the incident, they started pulling for Darrell as well. 
And I think that, yes, you're 100% right. That contributed greatly to Daryl winning the most popular driver. Well, I think certainly it put a black hat on Rusty. And I think it kind of cemented the white hat on Daryl as the good guy, yeah, so to speak. And I think, if you'll note, after 1989 and throughout the rest of his career, Daryl may not have been as successful as he was in the past, but he was much more respected. I think certainly what you said has a lot of validity because he was already kind of making that transition. He and his wife, Stevie, had had a child after you know years and years of trying. They had Jessica Lee, and then they had Caitlin. He was becoming seen as not the snotty-nosed brat who complained after every race and kind of poked fingers at the sports superstars. They saw him now as a family man. And I think kind of the Tide sponsorship mm-hmm. kind of softened his image a little bit. But I really and truly think that the Winston incident really kind of put him over the top when it came to being the sport's most popular driver that year. Yeah, I think I, I think it's a very good point. And again, I'll say, if you look at Daryl and his career after 1989, he, you know, it was good. It was very good. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But it wasn't as great as it had been, particularly with the Junior Johnson years. And, but Daryl still maintained a steady popularity growth all the way through. And again, he did indeed become the elder statesman for the sport. And when he transitioned into television, I think you can see it even more there. He was a natural to go to television, and he's been a natural ever since. The flip side of that coin is Rusty Wallace. And he talked very, very candidly in this interview about how long it took for him to regain at least a majority of his fan base. You know, some fans, when they get ticked off at somebody, it's cemented forever. If they hate Rusty Wallace over the 1989, the Winston, they're going to hate him forever. So, you know, there are always going to be that portion of race fans. But he talked very candidly in this interview about it took him from 1989 through April of 1993 when everything happened with Allen at Bristol. And he said that when he did the backwards victory lap at Bristol in honor of Allen, that he felt like that's the thing that really got his fans back. I think that's a very good point. I can remember vividly the image of him taking that lap, seared in everybody's mind at that time. And it's another iconic image in NASCAR, no doubt about it. And I think the fans obviously obviously appreciated the effort that he made to remember Allen, have them remember Allen as well. To me, it was a very significant thing, and I agree with you. The majority of the fans who might have turned against Rusty, I think a lot of them came back to supporting Rusty because the efforts he made on that particular day. There's a good analogy to what I'm saying, and it doesn't have anything to do with racing. Remember when the Beatles came in as a musical group? Parents Hated them. Hated them. Long hair. Uh, didn't want to listen to the music or anything of that nature. And it was a, if over the years, uh, parents, some parents were still reluctant to say that they liked the Beatles. One thing happened, though, that changed the last of the parental objections. And I'm not the only one that says this. Music critics also say this. When they recorded yesterday and set that out there, and you know what? It's a very romantic, touching ballad. 
and the parents listened to that. They said, these guys aren't so bad after all. So that one particular song broke down the final walls between the Beatles and parents. Okay? Same thing for Rusty in, a, in, in his own way. The one thing that he did at Bristol, I think, dismantled the last of the real objectors to him. Steve, the big news in NASCAR circles last week was Jack and Alice. Yeah. And Jimmy Johnson going their separate ways. Now, historically speaking, how big a shock was that to you? The reason it was pretty big is because Chad and Jimmy had been together their entire careers. And when it gets into a routine like that, you don't expect to see any change. So when it does happen, yeah, it's very, very shocking. You and I were talking before we started recording about some of the driver-crew chief combinations that have been so successful. And other than... Dell Enman and Richard Petty, I don't know of another combination that lasted as long as Chad and Jimmy did. Can you think, think there, of any? Oh, I don't think there is any. There were some that lasted several years and were very successful. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, David yeah. Pearson and Leonard Wood at the Wood Brothers, for example. You had Kirk Shelmerdine and Dell Earnhardt. That's exactly right. And for a number of years, you had Barry Dodson and Rusty Wallace. Nothing that made the imprint oh, yeah. that yeah. we've seen with Dale Lemon, Richard Petty, and Chad Knauss and Jimmy Johnson. Nothing near that. Well, the natural fit with that news of Chad and Jimmy going their separate ways for our issue of the week would have been the February 26th, 1981 issue of Grand National Scene that carried coverage of Dale Inman leaving Petty Enterprises, and he went and joined Rod Osterland and a driver by the name of Dale Earnhardt. How about that? <laughs> who was coming off his very first... Winston Cup Championship in 1980, and Dale went over, not as crew chief, but as vice president of racing operations. At the time, young, very, very young, Doug Richard was the crew chief. So Dale was going to go over and kind of oversee operations, and Doug was going to run the day-to-day operations. You were there in 1981, and you saw the impact that this had. Put it into perspective. What did it mean for Dale Inman? to leave Petty Enterprises. It was unimaginable at the time. It stunned everybody because they had been together so very long and had been so very successful. Uh, you couldn't imagine it being any other way. And after the Daytona race, which is the last one that Dale served as the crew chief for Richard, he spoke up. Which he won, yes. by the way. Yes. Yeah. And he spoke up at Richmond, and he was very outgoing, and this was... This was totally different for Dale Inman. Over the years, he'd been known as shy, reticent, uh, not uncooperative, but uh, he, he was not comfortable with the press. But in time, he got a little bit better, and at Richmond, he just spoke out. And what he essentially said was that uh, he had been listening to Rod Osterlund's offers for a good two or three years and decided to take him up on it because it was an opportunity. Now, here is what the rub is. Imagine all those years that he served with Richard Petty as crew chief and nothing more. Nothing more. Not once was Dale elevated to any position of status, real status, or control at Petty Enterprise. It was a family team. And Dale was Richard's cousin. But I'm sure he was thinking, I've been here all these years. And as I look around at Petty Enterprises, I can see there's nowhere for me to advance. 
if I'm going to advance, I'm going to have to supplant a family member. And that does make a guy think. The headline on the story that you wrote, that you wrote about this situation was no future at Petty Enterprises. You reported in that story that Rod Osterland had first mentioned this possibility to Dale in Atlanta in 1978. So this had been kind of on the table for, you know, two and a half, three years when it finally happened. Now, the money quote in this story, and it speaks to what you were talking about, Dale said, I will be 45 years old in August, and I'm still changing tires. Exactly. And that's exactly what I was trying to refer to. And there was nothing else for him to do with Petty Enterprises but that. Now he has an opportunity to do something else uh, over with Rod Oslin. And that means he has more responsibility, but he has the option of not having to go to every race and dedicate himself more to his family if he wanted to. And I'm also thinking that he probably got a bump at pay as well. You know, I think Dale has kind of alluded to the fact that maybe he and Maurice weren't exactly seeing eye to eye. I don't think there was any sordid story that they were at odds and they were at each other's throats or anything like that. Nothing like that. Yeah, I think it was just a situation where Dale was looking at the big picture. And your story basically lays out the whole thing because he said that he wasn't even home when his daughter Tina was born. And in the story, you quoted him as saying, I could understand why Mary got down on racing sometimes, Mary being his wife. Right. For example, to get ready for Daytona, we started flogging back at the shops right after our race in Phoenix, and that was a Winston West race that they had run. We worked from 7 until 7, and this is during the off-season. Exactly. 12 hours a day during the off-season. He goes on to say, the guys took off Sundays, but I kept working. I knew it was hard, and I accepted it. But it could be a little bit different, and I talked it over with my wife very, very seriously. I don't think at all that this was a decision that he made lightly. I would say that he agonized over this. Yeah, I would say you're right. And uh, again, he speaks of the opportunity. That, to me, is exactly what it was. I'm not putting petty enterprises down when I say this. Oh, no, no. Being a family operation means limited access and... Uh, advancement for people who are not blood relatives or members of the family. Although, again, Dale was a cousin. Just look at the positions of responsibility at Pet Enterprises at that time. He was not going to get any of them. And I think for him, the opportunity to get such a position and add to it the opportunity not to have to work the long hours and be away from home so much was just something he felt he should do. Unfortunately, the Oslin situation turned very, very <laughs> yeah. turbulent very quickly. Yeah, it did. It, Dale made this move in mid-February, right after the Daytona 500. Rod Osterlin sold the team to J.D. Stacy in late June. So he only had, you know, what, March, April, May, June, four months. Right. Four months of relative stability, and I'm sure the last month or so, Things were up in the air. So, you know, I'm sure that that was quite a shock for Dale. And I'm sure that he kind of second-guessed himself, at least for a little while. Well, I'm sure he did too. But he said even after Dale Earnhardt left before the season was over to join the new team formed by Richard Childress, Dale stayed. And I think that's to his credit. Not only did he stay that season, but he stayed uh, after 
Joe Rodney became the driver, and after Tim Richmond became the driver, he was still there. And he didn't leave that position until he got another position with Billy Hagen and Terry Labonte. And wound up with another championship. In 1984. In 1984. So that would make him certainly the only crew chief in history with eight championships. And that's why he's in the Hall of Fame. Think about that. Eight yeah. championships. Exactly. So that kind of puts that into perspective. And he came back to Petty Enterprises when Petty Enterprises opened the doors again in 1986. So that was a homecoming for him. Yep. Absolutely. And it- of course, he's stayed with the Petties ever since, even in the consulting role. I think he stopped being a crew chief by 1988, and but still remained a part of the Petty organization all the way through, uh, well, until the Petty Enterprises team itself fell off and uh, was no longer. So he was there all those years. Kind of an interesting story. I really see it as a kind of unique. You go, you go somewhere else, and you come back. Now, in any phase of life, Rick, would somebody necessarily be welcomed back from someplace or someone he left? It's not a routine thing by any stretch of imagination. And I think it says that there was never really any real bad blood between them. I think Richard probably understood. And if he didn't, certainly he didn't burn any bridges. No. Well, and that's put, the most important part. Let's put it this way. Dale Inman and, at Petty Enterprises, leaving Petty Enterprises, is not new to Petty Enterprises, even where family is concerned. Steve, another thing that I wanted to point out about this issue was the fact that at the time, Grand National Scene came out bi-weekly. So this issue carried coverage of not only Daytona and Del Emmon leaving, it also carried coverage of the second race of the year, which came at Richmond. And we were just talking about Daryl Waltrip in the first segment, and who won at Richmond? 1981, Daryl Waltrip. Exactly. In his first win for Junior Johnson. Right. Now, how significant was that? That began a very successful tenure for... Really successful. Yeah, for Daryl and, and Junior. And it all came about... Uh, you talk about sensational news at the time. Uh, Daryl was racing with Digard in the years before he got on with Junior, and he got to the point where he just could not stand to race for that team any longer. He didn't like the co-owners, Bill and Jim Gardner, at all, and he wanted out, but they had him in an ironclad contract. Now, when Cale Yarbrough left Junior Johnson after the 1980 season, Daryl saw an opportunity. And he started talking with Junior about driving for him. But he also told Junior he had this ironclad contract that he had to get out of before he could drive for Junior. To make a long story short, Junior bought out the contract and got Daryl to race for him. And that turned out to be a turning point in Daryl's career that started with that 1981 Richmond race and led to a ton of more victories and three championships three championships over the course of just five seasons. They were a dynasty. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They were made for each other at the time. The reason I think they were made for each other and did each other so well is because Junior was not, was never a tactical driver. (laughs) He was, he he didn't have much in the way of finesse. He liked to push his cars and Daryl did too. Daryl liked to push his cars. So Daryl had a driving style that met with Junior's approval. 
And I think there was a natural chemistry there that made them successful. Daryl Waltrip and Junior Johnson went to Bristol that very first year and started a string of seven consecutive victories at Bristol. Seven wins. So that tells me that this was absolutely a match made in heaven. That's definitely proof of that. There is something else to remember about all this. Junior Johnson was the most successful team owner on the short tracks, all of them. North Wilkesboro, Martinsville, Nashville, Bristol, you name it, Junior's cars were the ones to beat, whether Kale was driving or Daryl was driving them. That's just the way it was because Junior's cars were so strong on short tracks. Junior had something about his team in general that nobody else had. He won three in a row with Kale and then won three championships with Darrell Waltrip. So that was a perfect match if ever there was one. I agree wholeheartedly. Junior had masterful control over his team. In other words, they did whatever Junior wanted them to do simply because they respected him. And Junior was wise enough to know that with their victories and championships, there come rewards. And that's why so many guys over the years stayed with Junior and there was very little transition. I know it's hard to believe, but Daryl Waltrip had a great quote in this story about his new relationship with Junior Johnson. He said, it's funny, but it's a big adjustment to drive a car I used to cuss so much for so long a time. And knowing that the guys on this team were cussing me right back. Probably over the last five years, no two teams mouthed at each other more than the numbers 88 and 11. We accused each other of a lot. Well, (laughs) that also indicates, in my opinion, the respect that Daryl really had for Junior's team. I mean, he just said, we just got so tired of fighting that team and trying to beat that team. What does that mean? Well, I think it means he respected that team. And so why did he jump at the chance to drive for Junior when he could? I think we know the reason why. One last thing about this issue, and I think it's great. The original social media was Grand National Scene's Letters to the Editor section. (laughs) Just by chance, I glanced at some of the letters to the editor in this issue, and one read, Congratulations. In only a few short years, your paper has become the finest of its kind. I have every issue of Grand National Scene, and I'm amazed at how it has grown and developed. The outstanding photography of David Shobat, the opinions and reflections of Gene Granger, plus the talents of Pat Howell, Steve Wade, and others combined to make Grand National Scene the Bible of NASCAR stock car racing. Anyone who does not subscribe to this paper is not a racing fan. Now, Steve, do you have any idea who might have wrote that? Yeah, I wrote it. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't. This name jumped out at me. Elmer Kappel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Elmer Kappel from Lebanon Junction, Kentucky. Elmer, after he wrote this letter, became one of our very finest freelance photographers for years and years. He lasted a great long time, had a great tenure was seen in what was then known as Grand National Illustrated. He submitted his work one time, and David Chobat, whom we all admired as a photographer, took a look at it all, and he came to me and said, we have got to display this guy's work and get him on our team. Well, to display the work, and this is the only time we ever did this, he got a full four-page section of his photos alone in Illustrated. So uh, that started his career with us, and he remained one of the best we ever had.
Steve, we're coming off turn four towards the checkered flag. So that means we've gotten through another one, and you haven't killed me this issue, <laughs> this episode. No, take us across the finish line, right? <laughs> Listeners, as always, I thank you for your passion. I thank you for listening. And if you could, check us out on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast. So a dollar a month is all we're asking over there. Anybody can do a dollar a month, Steve. That's a bargain. <laughs> Also, if you would prefer not to get tied down to a monthly commitment, a one-time contribution, you can do at paypal.me slash the scene bought podcast. And finally on iTunes, we've mentioned this almost since the very first episode. If you can give us a five-star rating and a written review, somebody is going to pick up a copy of every single one of my NASCAR-related books. So that's a cool prize, and it also helps us out on iTunes and, and get more visibility and that kind of thing. So, Steve, close us out. Well, I will do that, Rick. Once again, it's been a very enjoyable experience to go back and check out some of NASCAR's history and some of uh, the old Grand National Scenes history as well. You know, every time I sit here with you and we talk about Grand National Scene and you point out this article I wrote and that article I wrote and I go to myself. I don't remember doing any of that. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it's good therapy for me and I'm hoping that the listeners are enjoying it. Good therapy? Your bill's in the mail, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> listeners, we'll see you next week.